Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to the third installment of American History Homework, where I read from collections of often thick and dull essays I wrote back in grad school. On this edition, we're continuing our look at why the original American government structure, the Articles of Confederation, were replaced by the Constitution. And we'll get into some of the specific mechanics that allows the Republic to operate. This first section is regarding what was the Federalist, or as we know now, the Federalist Papers. What were they all about? Who were they written for? And what were they trying to accomplish? In its analysis of the weaknesses and failures of the Articles of Confederation, the Federalist Papers explain why historically it was necessary to completely overhaul the then structure of the American government. And in doing so, whether it was intentional or not, it also served as a warning to all governments and men who attempt to govern in the here and now, seeming to anticipate specific crises that we in the modern age think we are the only peoples who have ever had to wrestle with. Not only are the basic problems of governing reflected upon, but specifically the state of the clay-footed humans wishing to do the governing. In spite of the often modern flippant dismissals of the Founding Fathers and their documents, their experiences and observations about themselves and the issues they faced were not just occurrences of another outdated time irrelevant to our own. We are still beings with the same predilections for power and at the same time predilections to put our trust in flawed men, regardless of any proclaimed or unperceived motivations. The authors of the Federalist Papers, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay, were incredibly thorough in their arguments of always being on the lookout for tyranny wherever it appeared, be it in individuals working within a structure, the clusters of men in the state legislatures and other democratic institutions, or the outside foreign forces seeing the young country as ripe for the exploiting and the threat of economic weakness that the Articles had left the nation in the state of. Why has government been instituted at all? Because the passions of men will not conform to the dictates of reason and justice without constraint. Federalist 15 says, echoing Federalist 51's famous If Men Were Angels quote, Have republics in practice been less addicted to war than monarchies? Are not the former administered by men as well as the latter? Argues Federalist 6, dispelling anyone's illusions that just because the country lacked a monarchy guaranteed a government free from corruption. Is commerce of importance to national wealth? It is asked in Federalist 15. Ours is at the lowest point. And are we in a condition to resent or repel aggression? We have neither troops nor treasury nor government, reads Federalist 15, when addressing how defenseless America was at that time, should any of America's enemies invade at that moment. And yet they also recognize that in spite of all of our tendencies towards tyranny, 
an efficient and powerful, though restrained, government operated by these same flawed men was necessary, concluding that the people must cede to it some of their natural rights in order to vest it with requisite powers, federalist too. In a way, a united country with a strong central government would be a check on both tyranny of the autocratic states in the Union and other countries with ill intentions towards America. In addition to protecting and creating a viable country for its citizens, it would also serve as a check on the power of the individual with its proposed uniform laws. The view present in the Federalist about the fallen nature of men's hearts was was at times as cynical as the most pulpit-pounding ministers. Federalist 6 warns the readers against forgetting that, quote, men are ambitious, vindictive, and rapacious, unquote. And if one were to assume that everyone would unite voluntarily for the good of all, it, quote, would be to disregard the uniform course of human events and to set at defiance the accumulated experiences of ages, unquote. Regardless of our altruism or lack thereof, if we are to believe the Federalist writers, whether that the pursuit of power is for the more obvious benefit to our personal fortunes, the desire for equality, the jealousy of power, or for some other noble mission, an unrestrained amount of it is bound to corrupt and distort how we are perceived by others. Quote, Candor will oblige us to admit that even such men may be actuated by upright citizens, proclaims Federalist One. So numerous indeed and so powerful are the causes which serve to give a false bias to the judgment that we see wise and good men on the wrong as well as on the right side of questions. There's both some humility and political savvy to be learned from the Federalist Papers. The authors knew that those who benefited from the Articles of Confederation would feel threatened and possibly insulted, and thus predicted, quote, among the most formidable of the obstacles which the new Constitution will have to encounter may readily be distinguished the obvious interest of a certain class of men in every state to resist all changes which may hazard a diminution of the power, emolument, and consequence of the offices they hold under the state establishments, and the perverted ambition of another class of men who will either hope to aggrandize themselves by the confusions of their country or will flatter themselves with fairer prospects of elevation." And although the Federalist Papers did not shy away from the scathing criticisms of nameless others, especially when giving examples of abuses of power and corruptions that had occurred under the article's government structure, it speaks of these failures as something understandable, considering the quickness of its formation, it being put together, quote, almost as soon as they had a political existence, at a time when their habitations were in flames, when many of their citizens were bleeding, and when the progress of hostility and desolation left little room for those calm and mature inquiries and reflections which must ever precede the formation of a wise and well-balanced government for a free people, unquote. And we, be we anti-federalist or federalist, are susceptible to those weaknesses. In other words, the authors of the Federalist managed to thoroughly level its accusations evenly at both those clearly who have already abused powers and those still innocent who will likely be abusers if ever given the chance. To channel Abigail Adams, quote, all men would be tyrants if they could, unquote. This approach disarms the opposition to its ideas fairly brilliantly by putting the 
proverbial arm around the specific powerful men and saying, brother, this is an all of us problem. By admitting that everyone's failings should be anticipated in regards to be given great power. In its ability to not demonize, the Federalist Papers kept those already guilty of abuse of power from digging in their heels against ratifying the Constitution. Initially, the Federalist wasn't a book per se. It was a series of essays printed in newspapers. But when collected together, it becomes very much a treatise again on all the aforementioned subject matters, similar to any great or influential religious or philosophical work. But this was a byproduct of Hamilton, Madison, and Jay's attempt to convince the nation, specifically the delegates of the individual states, and more specifically, those in the state of New York, on why doing away with the Articles of Confederation and ratifying the Constitution was in the best interest of the country as a whole. But best interest is maybe underselling the crisis that was in that, according to Federalist One, the need for a new system of government was for nothing less than the existence of the Union. The same peoples who had just fought side by side throughout a long and bloody war and had established general liberty and independence were on the verge of breaking into, quote, unsocial, jealous, and alien sovereignties, unquote. That's Federalist Two. In other words, the United States of America's very existence was at that time in jeopardy and had been put in harm's way by the weaknesses of the Articles. The people, via their representatives, acting quickly and wisely was imperative, but in addition, the Federalists warned that, quote, a wrong election on the part we shall act may deserve to be considered as the general misfortune of mankind, unquote. Federalist 1. No doubt the world was watching to see if this very small group of farmers and minor aristocrats who just defeated the greatest empire in the world could hold it together long enough to keep a government that both survived and didn't descend into the very tyranny it had just shed. The U.S. Constitution promised to establish a representative or Republican form of government. So what exactly is small r, Republican form of government? A Republican form of government is one which the members of the government are elected directly by the people. Though citizens themselves do not vote on any law or motion, they do put forth representatives whom, because it will be their duty to know the mechanics of governing and the law, will vote on laws or execute them, one. James Madison wrote in Federalist 39 that, quote, we may define a republic to be a government which derives all its powers directly or indirectly from the great body of the people, unquote. The U.S. Constitution is republican in nature, but is one with a Federalist structure. How this idea is manifested is while the House of Representatives in the national legislature is directly elected by the people, the Senate originally, president and judiciary are all elected indirectly, and some of those through the filter of the state governments. For example, the president is elected when electors, whom are appointed by each state legislature, which are themselves elected directly by the people, from each state consider whom their respective populations have voted for and choose accordingly. The elected president will then nominate an individual to become a judge in any number of the federal courts and will be confirmed or rejected by the Senate, whom originally 
were elected by the state legislatures, whom themselves were elected directly by the people. And I should maybe reiterate, the Senate originally was elected by the various state legislatures, and that was changed by a constitutional amendment in the early 20th century, to where now the Senate is elected directly by the people. And while the state governments are inferior to the national one, in the federal scheme, the former still have some say in the administration of the latter. Also, according to Madison in Federalist 45, quote, the powers delegated by the proposed constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite, unquote. In other words, whatever the Constitution didn't say the national government could do, the states could do if they were not forbidden by the Constitution or later amendments. James Madison wrote in Federalist 10, quote, to secure the public good and private rights against the danger of such a majority faction and at the same time to preserve the spirit and the form of popular government is then the great object to which our inquiries are directed, unquote. Though a republic is a form of democracy, it is not a pure democracy. Pure democracies were feared by the Founding Fathers because, in essence, they seemed to always descend into a form of mob rule, regardless of the morality or intelligence of the populace. Quote, had every Athenian citizen been a Socrates, every Athenian assembly would still have been a mob, unquote, warns Federalist 55. So say 51% of a group of people, be it a neighborhood or a nation, decide that it would be awesome to enslave the other 49%, well then, that would be allowed in that it is a pure, unchecked democracy in action. Madison observed in Federalist 10, quote, measures are too often decided not according to the rules of justice and the rights of the minor party, but the superior force of an interested and overbearing majority, unquote. Even the ancient democracies had learned the flaws of pure democracies early on, many of them quickly morphing into forms of republican democracy. Federalist 63 points out that, quote, in the most pure democracies of Greece, many of the executive functions were performed not by the people themselves, but by officers elected by the people and representing the people in their executive capacity, unquote. What the Founding Fathers prescribed as a protective solution from either the tyrannies of majorities or tyrannies of a ruling class was having a check on its Republican democracy via separated internal powers and constitutionalism. So, with a professional class of politicians or lawyers as originally envisioned, and certain offices insulated from the capricious passions of the people via longer terms or lifetime appointments, Leaders could govern without fear of immediate reprisals, thus allowing for adequate time to compose sound legislation and to allow these actions to see themselves through as only a proper amount of time can test. Another protection against the republic descending into a pure democracy was the plurality of its citizens' self-interest. Quote, the history of almost all the great councils and consultations held among mankind for reconciling their discordant opinions, assuaging their mutual jealousies, and adjusting their respective interests is a history of factions, contentions, and disappointments, and may be classed 
among the most dark and degraded pictures which display the infirmaries and depravities of the human character, unquote. And that's Federalist 37. But if these factions of people with common and uncommon ambitions are allowed to exist side by side, the pursuit of their self-interest would bring a balance to the pursuit of the goals to the Democratic-Republican system. Quote, ambition must be made to counteract ambition, unquote, stated Madison in Federalist 51. This occurs especially when no one faction can become a majority, and thus in the pursuit of its wants must make allegiances with other groups, pulling each towards a center in creating the great art of compromise, and also avoiding the societal-suicidal cliff-diving of extremes. With the Constitution in the American mix, no matter if 99% of the population wants to get rid of, say, trial by jury, at least with the Constitution as it sits unchanged would not allow it. Granted, if 99% of the people wanted to do away with anything in the Constitution, there is the lengthy Republican process of amendments that would allow it to do as much. But the length of the process the founders hoped would help simmer the momentary fleeting inflamed passions of the people and hopefully cause cooler heads to prevail. The, quote, faithful guardians of the Constitution, unquote, according to Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 78, is the independent judiciary. With their ability to review laws passed by the democratically elected legislature in both the national and state forms, the federal courts can, Hamilton continues, quote, declare all acts contrary to the manifest tenor of the Constitution void, unquote. And so can we expect the Republican form of government to create a utopia? Certainly not, though drawn from ideas perfect and divine, something gets lost in the execution. As Madison put it in Federalist 37, quote, when the Almighty himself condescends to address mankind in their own language, his meaning Luminous as it must be, is rendered dim and doubtful by cloudy medium through which is communicated. Unquote. And finally, part three. According to the Federalists, why is it difficult to combine stability and energy with liberty and the Republican form? Is the question I attempted to answer. First, we should define stability and energy as James Madison sees it. Energy is the ability of the government to be efficient, effective, while free from as much corruption as possible, and still answerable to the people, so as to provide, quote, security against external and internal danger, and to that prompt and salutary execution of the laws, unquote, Federalist 37. Lack of energy was something that the Articles of Confederation seemed to provide for the nation, such as when dealing with waging the Revolutionary War and addressing internal conflicts such as Shays' Rebellion and conflicts of the states with each other over matters of trade. In other words, they couldn't get anything done quickly. Stability was seen as having apt men in power that were able to serve terms long enough to execute their duties though not so long as to become monolithic, corrupted powers within themselves. The difficulty of having both energy and stability in a republic was that it seemed, quote, to demand on one side not only that all power should be derived from the people, but that those entrusted with it should 
be kept in independence on the people by a short duration of their appointments, and that even during this short period, the trust should be placed not in a few, but a number of hands, unquote. So on the energy side, the electorate would elect agents of the government and that the terms would be short. The problems that would arise in purely energetic governing would be that, quote, a frequent change of men will result from a frequent return of elections and a frequent change of measures from a frequent change of men, unquote. The government would end up a revolving door of legislators doing and undoing laws without the requisite time or experience needed to make sound law or allowing time to test the worth of laws produced. Hence, good energy in government, we could say, quote, requires not only a certain duration of power, but the execution of it by a single hand, unquote. And thus, in the pursuit of stability, it would be required, quote, that the hands in which power is lodged should continue for a length of time the same, unquote. Governing with strength required men to have time to confer, debate, and legislate, and then see to it that their efforts accomplished what they had proposed to do. Many states had instituted very short terms, some as short as a year, and so were sometimes unable to see lawmaking through before they were voted out by a fickle electorate. Also, though Plubius, the anonymous author, doesn't mention it here, the argument is often made that the governing body needs hands that are experienced in all facets of lawmaking, dealmaking, diplomacy, economics, and so on. And though the founders wanted a democracy of sorts, they also wanted some parts of the government that were not elected directly by the public, but appointed by elected officials, so that there were some in power that could make the difficult and sometimes unpopular decisions that those looking towards their elections wouldn't have to worry too much about. The problem Problems with too much stability, so to speak, would be the stagnation that often comes when officials have become comfortable, corrupt, and seemingly immune from the consequences of their actions. This would more likely occur in such non-elected appointed positions, but also since the rise of political parties, the phenomenon has arose where in certain areas of the country, one political party is re-elected without significant challenges and ends up controlling every aspect of its allotted powers, feeling safe from being voted out. And in the case that anyone thought that a country could be ran entirely by the energy of a room full of humans, Federalist 37 sneers, quote, The history of almost all the great councils and consultations held among mankind for reconciling their discordant opinions, assuaging their mutual jealousies, and adjusting their respective interests is a history of factions, contentions, and disappointments, and may be classed among the most dark and degraded pictures which display the infirmities and depravities of the human character. If in a few scattered instances a brighter aspect is presented, they serve only as exceptions to admonish us of the general truth, and by their luster to darken the gloom and the adverse prospect to which they are contrasted." Though it is more certainly that Federalist 38 is reiterating the difficulty of forming a government by deliberation, it also seems that possibly an argument is being made in the pursuit of stability for either a strong executive or unelected positions by its review of incidents in history where good governments were framed. They were often executed by a single individual. The examples of Minos of Crete, Salicus of Locrians, Romulus of Rome, among others, are given to seemingly praise the efficiency of government forming where its dictates were trusted to one man or, more importantly, not to a council. Madison admits that the end results were not necessarily perfect, especially when those trusted considered the wants of the soon-to-be-governed, such as with Solon, who 
quote, confessed that he had not given to his countrymen the best government suited to their happiness, but most tolerable to their prejudices, unquote. All the same, none of the examples given end with one man trusted becoming a dictator, though some heads were cracked here and there. Lysurgus, for example, did use a little violence to get his deeds done, but only after promising to give up his own citizenship and to kill himself when everything was put in place. The final and ideal for the time, Republican government would derive, quote, all its powers directly or indirectly from the great body of the people and is administered by persons holding their offices during pleasure for a limited period or during good behavior, unquote. And with a sense of trying to avoid one class or population domineering the administration of this government, the officials would be, quote, derived from the great body of, of the society, not from an inconsiderable proportion or favored class of it, unquote. And this is to distinguish themselves from other societies that had dabbled in democracy and the representatives all came from the upper class generally. Balance between direct and indirect democracy with both energy and stability. While the House of Representatives would be elected by citizens, the Senate would be appointed by the state legislatures. Some officials would be appointed by the executive with limited terms, while in the judiciary, those appointed would have unlimited terms if those appointed behaved justly. The end result would be a mix of national and federal approaches. Direct democracy and indirect democracy, all limited by various checks and balances. chance that you found all of that interesting you might give in the corner back by the woodpile episode 280 a listen where i talk more about the articles of confederation and the creation of the constitution in addition there is episode 275 where i speak with one of my former professors dr david krugler about the differences between the 1910s and the 1920s in the corner back by the woodpile is produced by a closet a pocket and a suitcase you can listen to this podcast on itunes stitcher or podbean.com if you'd like to send us some hate mail you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com see ya and i wouldn't want to be ya (laughs) 